we're going to not spend that money here and we're going to spend it someplace else where we know we have a critical need. Does the ADA allow that type of flexibility for, say, a state DOT? It doesn't allow it. It absolutely requires it. I mean, you absolutely need to be prioritizing locations and prioritizing the, you know, mood of places, how many folks are going to be using it. And, you know, it does it provide not only access to, to the streets, to the sidewalks, to the transit stops, to the buildings, to, to this and to that. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have as a special guest, Heidi Johnson Wright. She is an Americans with Disabilities Act coordinator with Dade County, Florida. She's also an attorney and an adjunct professor in the architecture department at the University of Miami. She blogs at Earthbound Tomboy. We got to having conversations back and forth because she is an author and an ADA design expert. And I had a number of questions about ADA provisions that I wanted to explore. She agreed to come on the podcast and chat about those with us. So, Heidi, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Chuck. Let's start real basic. You know, this is for me, but this is also for people listening who have heard of the American with Disabilities Act, but don't really understand what it is and how it applies to our cities. What is the ADA? The American Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990, is a civil rights act that provides protection to people with disabilities in a similar way that the uh, Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s provided uh, protection against discrimination in other protected classifications and age and uh, gender and national origin and so forth, but disability was not included in those acts in the 1960s. So the ADA, which was passed in 1990, does in provide that protection. Um, it's got several different portions to it or sections and titles. The ones that I think most people are familiar with or probably most relevant, I mean, there's Title One, which deals with all the employment provisions. And so basically dealing with the workplace, but also even dealing with uh, applying for jobs and so forth. So that's, that's Title One. Title Two is the one that I'm uh, really kind of most experienced with. My whole career has been in public service. And Title Two deals with state and local governments and what uh, those governments are required to do to make their programs and services and activities and facilities accessible to and usable by people with disabilities. And then there's Title III, that's public accommodations, uh, which really means private businesses and nonprofits and so forth. I think that's the title that probably most people are aware of. It basically says that businesses such as uh, stores and restaurants and theaters and all kinds of different places, doctor's offices and so forth, have to provide their services in uh, in a way that's accessible to people with disabilities. Um, And there's also some other provisions of the Act that give uh, telecommunications. But those are really probably the most relevant portions of, of the Act. What were some of the problems that existed prior to the ADA that was attempted to be addressed by this act? 
Wow. I mean, it really would be touching on any of the issues relevant to, to those, those titles that I just mentioned. But, you know, to give you some examples, it would be, um, you know, say if somebody with a disability was qualifying to do a job, but they simply needed some sort of an accommodation, a reasonable accommodation in order to do that job. Perhaps they needed, oh, maybe a special keyboard or, you know, a different, different things. Those were not required to be provided to somebody. And, you know, the employer might provide them, they might not. And so that could certainly be an issue for people. Also, you know, if you're going to, I mean, let's say you're going to go to a museum, you know, with friends, uh, with family, and you want to maybe you're, you're deaf or hearing impaired, you want to get some of the information that's provided audibly in written form and probably is not something that the museum may, may have been doing. Um, really just all those kinds of things. I mean, just going out with friends or even something really more critical, even the, in, inside the hospital and, and making things accessible for somebody to get in and use uh, medical facilities. You know, it, it's affected a lot of different things and it has made things better for folks with disabilities and give them some form of redress if their rights are violated. I'd like to explore that, just how successful it has been. You've had a transformation now over the last 25 years. For someone with a physical disability, is it easier now today than it was? How much easier is it? When you look back, is this kind of been a large, large change or or not quite as large? How successful has this whole thing been? I think it's certainly been very successful. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and so I remember Lost before the ADA. Of course, back then you didn't really think so much about, you know, I, I have a right to this or that because it simply really didn't exist. But things definitely have improved for quality of life for people with disabilities across the board in many different respects. Um, anytime people have more opportunities to become employed, anytime people have the opportunity to use public transit that they weren't able to use before and get out, uh, out and about and um, have independent lives, anytime people um, have the ability to use government services that they're entitled to in a way that they can, can utilize them that they weren't able to utilize, say, before the law. All of that is very important, very transforming, and really essential. However, I will be honest, I mean, and I think a lot of folks with disabilities would agree that it's not a magic wand. There really is no, of course, such thing as a magic wand, actually. And you can legislate and pass, pass laws that you can't change hearts and minds just simply by the act of legislation. And so those kinds of things take time. Changing of attitudes takes time. Um, and I, one of the things when I talk to, for example, architecture students, and I try to explain to them the thing about cultural change and how it, it takes time, I give them the example how, like when I was growing up in the 1970s, um, at the time people made jokes about drunk driving. I mean, it's, it's shocking today, but back then people would make jokes about it, think it was funny when somebody was very drunk sitting behind a wheel and so forth. It was, of course, even then, certainly illegal. It was certainly very responsible and dangerous, and people died or were injured from it. But there was just this cultural thing that they thought, you know, people kind of thought it was funny. And fortunately, over time, probably a lot to the claims of, of Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, we've changed the cultural look at the attitude of things. And now people don't really make jokes about the driving. People realize the seriousness of it. So it's taken decades and decades for that kind of thing to happen. And I think that that's going to be the case with uh, with disability issues. I'd like to hear from you some of the problems that 
are, are still faced because like you said, this, this isn't a magic wand. I've been uh, working professionally since the mid nineties and, and certainly ADA has been a part of what we've done as an engineer, as planners ever since then. But there's still a lot of problems that people face that are, are not being addressed. Could you give them kind of a little bit of redress here? I mean, what, what are some of the things that people still deal with that we haven't, even in 25 years, been able to modify at this point? You know, certainly employment. Certainly people are still being discriminating in the workplace in regard to, to their disability. And you will see that the largest amount of cases being litigated in courts on the ADA is by far and away employment cases. So those things are, are still issues. And by employment, you're saying if facilities aren't being provided or people are being let go or not employed or what kind of cases are those? I mean, it could be somebody needs a particular type of accommodation in the workplace in order to do the job, very qualified to the essential functions of the job, but they need some sort of an accommodation in order to do that, whether that be a physical accommodation or whether it be, uh, you know, some sort of thing where maybe they're diabetic and they need to take a few very short meal breaks during the day to check their blood sugar level. So it could be a whole variety of things with employment. Okay. Well, go on beyond employment then. If you talk to people, with disabilities, particularly wheelchair users, uh, which is my disability, and I use a wheelchair f- for mobility. There's some big cities or some areas, metropolitan areas, that have good, reliable, accessible taxi service, but boy, there are a lot of places that don't. That that is still a real struggle. And so, just the idea of, hey, I, I need to call a taxi, or you know, and that anybody without a disability would take for granted simply for a lot of folks with disabilities it's just forget it. It's not even it's not even possible. Even existing, for example, um, my husband and I love to go to New York, we love to use public transit when we're there, but only maybe one out of ten uh, subway stations have an elevator that you can get to if you're a wheelchair user. So what does that do then for people that live there, then that makes people more reliant, having to rely on paratransit services. And paratransit services are, are a lot more cumbersome to, to carry out. I mean, they're wonderful. I'm, I think it's paratransit absolutely essential, but it puts more burden on, on those systems. And it costs uh, whoever provides the paratransit costs more than if somebody was taking fixed route. And then anytime you get into transportation issues, things that are trickier for folks with disabilities, that also then affects them being able to get and hold a job. Because if you get to do your job on time, you're repeatedly being late because you're getting picked up late by paratransit or you can't use the fixed route or you attempt to and the elevators aren't working, you know, that, that definitely affects that. Housing is a whole other issue. Uh, the ADA really doesn't apply to housing. Uh, a lot of people think that it does, but it really doesn't. And so housing is a big thing. And I've seen statistics that one out of seven folks in nursing homes today are people that are under the age of 60. So you get more and more folks with disabilities who they could certainly become productive and live in the community if there was affordable, accessible housing. And if in community attendant services, care services were provided versus putting them in a nursing home. So you can imagine if you're in a nursing home, how are you ever going to get employed? How are you ever going to have any meaningful life? I mean, nursing homes are important, yes, but not if that's not where you belong. And a lot of times that's because there simply isn't accessible affordable housing and community attendant care. By paratransit, I want to make sure that I understand what paratransit is. Paratransit, go ahead. Why don't I just let you describe 
for example, most transit systems, the fixed route transit, the bus, typically we're talking about buses or trains, those are made accessible, they're all accessible, the buses are accessible, the lifts on buses, kneeling and kneeling buses, et cetera, transit stations that are accessible. However, there are some folks who simply are not able to walk to a transit stop or be out in transit stop. It could be that maybe somebody that can't get to it because of, of some sort of debilitating situation. Maybe they've got severe MS. Maybe some days they can walk to the bus stop. Another days they simply can't. Um, maybe they can't be out in the cold or the rain because of disability. Maybe they've got cognitive or intellectual disabilities that prevent them from, from being able to, to do fixed round. So then that means that that transit system must provide paratransit to folks uh, that can't use the fixed route. And what that usually means is a lot of times it's accessible vans to get folks on who are wheelchair users. But a lot of times it's also sitting on cars as well to pick up folks who are blind and who, who can't, you know, otherwise use uh, other transit. You jog something in my mind. I have been intrigued with the Uber and Lyft business model and, and some of the things that they've done and just how it's been impacting the transportation debate. One of the critiques of Uber and Lyft is that they don't provide necessarily uh, handicap accessible vehicles. And I wasn't aware, call me ignorant, wasn't aware that cities were generally require that as part of their taxi licensing programs. Can you go into that a little bit and explain how those services are an important part of of mobility for people with disabilities? Well, I mean, it's, it's certainly important in that, you know, with paratransit services, which are vital and essential and are a, a great service, you have to, you know, definitely get qualified to use them. Um, you're evaluated in terms of your need to use it. And then you are required to schedule your rides in advance, uh, typically a minimum of 24 hours. And, you know, ideally you would even schedule them, you know, earlier than that, make sure that you're going to get a ride to work and so forth. However, you know, sometimes in life there are things that need to People need to call and do things. People with disabilities should have the same abilities as people that don't have disabilities that you decide you want to get a ride. You want to get a ride the day of. I have a friend who is disabled, a wheelchair user, and his wife in the middle of the night experienced a severe um, attack of kidney stones and was in incredible pain. They called, uh, of course, an ambulance to take her to the hospital. But my friends, they couldn't take care of transit because you get a 24 hours notice. And he attempted to get a cab, a cab ride and it was undo- not doable. And so basically, he had to stay at home. And while his wife was suffering incredible pain, went to the hospital, he had to let her go on her own and try to find the ride the next day to go to be with her. You mentioned earlier that ADA doesn't cover housing. And I, I know some of the stuff that you sent me started to deal with that. And you, you had this thing called visitability. I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit and talk about why it matters. Why is it important? Yeah, visitability, and I try to make sure people are understanding what I'm saying, not visibility, but visitability. Um, I talk about this with uh, architecture students and architecture theory, trying to get them to think about the world and, and the built environment uh, in a different, little bit different way. Basically, it is a reform movement. It's grounded really more in the ideas of social reform. The, the typical visitability ordinance that gets passed, it may be on a state level, maybe on a local level, will require that single-family homes have usually three different elements in them. One is at least one zero-step entrance, 
Another one is doorways on the first floor wide enough to accommodate wheelchairs passing through. And the third is a, a bathroom on the first floor that can be easily adapted for the use of a person with a disability. You'll see that there are jurisdictions in different parts of the U.S. that have visitability laws, and they do vary considerably. Some of the less stringent ones only apply to housing where there is government dollars involved in funding all or part of the housing um, or some of the housing. But there are other jurisdictions. So I'm thinking of Austin, Texas, for example. I'm also thinking of Pima County, Arizona, that have much more stringent laws for visibility, saying that even private homes put by private home builders must have those particular elements. So in terms of what's why visitability is important is everybody should relate to housing and the ability to use housing and, and have a place to live, for goodness sake. And this kind of follows up on what I said earlier about people with disabilities being warehoused in nursing homes for lack of accessible housing. So it's, it's certainly very important. The ADA doesn't cover housing. The Fair Housing Act covers multifamily for four units or more. And so then the question becomes, well, what about single-family homes? And you know, I've, I've seen studies done by the um, by AARP that most people want to live in single-family homes, age in single-family homes. And 69, I've seen figures of 69 to 70% of all housing units in the U.S. are single-family. So that means that more than two-thirds of housing in the U.S., is not required to be accessible by any law or by very, you know, occasionally jurisdictions that have some visibility laws, but those are really rather far and few between. So that means that, number one, somebody with a disability from, that has disability from early age, it's going to be much tougher for them to get, to get a home that's going to meet their needs. And it's also, you've got folks that, you know, you buy, maybe you buy a home when you're in your 30s, Maybe you've got it paid off by the time you're in your 50s. You love your home. You've made a community there. All your friends are there. Your church is there. Your doctors, you you love living there. Why, when you get to be, say, 55, and maybe you're diagnosed with MS, or maybe you have some sort of, you know, really serious other, other disability, why should you have to sell that house and leave it? Simply because there, you cannot remain in it any longer. I think that's really the kinds of questions that we should be thinking about when we think about visitability. Let me ask you something that I have heard said before. I think it's an important question to address. When only a small percentage of people in the country have a physical disability, why would you require every new home that's built to have these kind of basic visitability type of standards? Why is it important that it be everywhere? Okay, well, it depends on what you mean by small. I mean, 57 million folks in the United States have some form of disability. There's over a little over 300 million folks in the U.S., I believe. Now, that doesn't mean that all 57 million have a physical disability, but still, there's a chunk of people there that do. Obviously, much has been said in many, in many regards regarding baby boomers aging, and so you're getting more folks that are aging, that are going to be developing issues as they get older. So, you know, that's really important. And also, the fact, you know, disability is very isolating. And it's not simply about the ability to get a home 
acquire a home or age in place in your home, it's also about being able to be in a, in a society where you can go to other people's homes. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I use a power chair generally, which is much too heavy to ever even try to do a single step. And my husband and I, if we do get an invite to go to someone's home, we can take, I do have a, a lightweight manual chair, but my husband can really only manage to get me maybe a step or two up of that. So a lot of times we pretty much just have to turn down invitations or I'll say, you know, I tell him to go on his own because there's just simply no way I'm going to get in there. Or even if I am able to make it in the house, the odds of me being able to use the restroom are pretty, pretty minimal. So that's, that's also another aspect of visibility. One of the things, and I, I know you have written about new urbanism and smart growth and walkable communities. It seems to me that one of the things that we desperately need in this country is to re-inhabit some of our old buildings and re-inhabit some of our old neighborhoods in our existing cities. Many of these places were built way before anybody even contemplated ADA standards. I know builders will complain about the cost, and I, I get that. We can deal with that some other way. But they also say that a lot of times the only way to meet these standards is to tear down these buildings and start over. Is this a reality or is this a myth that has grown beyond proportion to what actual experience tells us? I think there's some truth to it, but I think it is overblown. I think it's simply, in some ways, it's simply a refusal to look at other other ways of doing things. My husband and I both love old neighborhoods. We live in a 1924 Spanish mission-style home in Little Havana, Miami. And um, I guarantee you that when it was built in 1924, it was not built with people with disabilities in mind. So we had to make certain changes to the home, but we were able to do so. We love the house. And, you know, it's, it, I can't see really living anywhere else, at least at this point in my life. So it, it can be done. And if you're also talking about commercial buildings too, I mean, you can you can do that. You can create access. I think some of it is a failure to think creatively, and sort of just a, an out or an excuse to really want to even deal with the issue. However, I, I you know I will agree. I mean, I think that everybody probably agrees on the fact that if you can build something from the ground up, and if the design is done well, and if the licensing or the authority that's that's um, going to grant your your CO doing your inspections, if they know what is required under law, they're probably going to get a building that is easier to use than an older than an older building that's been re- has to be retrofitted. But I don't think that we can say that it can't be done. I think that, you know, this sort of this ability to truly be dismissive of disability access, um, that it's too costly, it's too difficult, you know, is really not a whole lot different than before when there were laws that enabled, that sadly enabled segregation in communities based on race um, or, or you know, the protected classifications, where we just say, oh, you know what, it's too difficult, it's too much for us to deal with, let's just not even make things integrated for people. And it really, it does come down to that. I'm wondering, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to go to some European countries a few times. And I've never gone with my family. I've gone with my wife, but not with my dad. My dad had polio when he was a kid, and he still is able to walk, but kind of in a limited way. 
I've always thought when I was there, like, oh, I, I don't think my dad could come here. I think he would have a, a difficult time. How do places with more established development patterns, like the northeast of this country or, you know, some of the older cities of Europe, it seems like there's a, there's an, a very progressive ethic in terms of this issue in those places. How have they dealt with that older established development pattern and having it be more accommodating? What are some of the, the steps that have been taken in those places? That's a great question. And I think that it's just like there are different um, levels of disability access in different cities in the U.S. I think the same certainly holds true for, for Europe. My husband and I have been to throughout Spain, uh, multiple big cities in Spain, and a lot of also small towns and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's kind of all over uh, the board. But one of the cities that we love very much is Barcelona. And, you know, Barcelona, we're talking Roman times. We're talking Hannibal Pasadena with his elephants. I mean, we're not talking a place that, you know, like in the U.S. where you've got cities that were founded not that long ago, and somehow they've managed to make many of what of their spaces, their plazas, their sidewalks, their transit, even older buildings that hold how small, you know, museum, the Picasso Museum I'm thinking there, which is in an older neighborhood. Apartments, my husband and I prefer to stay in apartments instead of hotels. We've rented a couple different short-term apartments in Barcelona, and one was in one of the older neighborhoods in the Bourne neighborhood. And it has been accessible, and the outside looks probably like it did for centuries, and the inside um, has been made accessible with an elevator. So it can be done. I think it's just a matter of a viewpoint and of what's a priority, and people, you know, realizing that it's it's going to be an essential thing to integrate people. And you know, and people with disabilities are not like some sort of separate race over here in the corner. And that's one of the things that I tell, you know, that the architecture students is that, you know, disability and, and health issues are really a natural part of, of the human condition. They really are disease process and things are a part of the human condition. It's not something that happens to a, a group of people. And, you know, it used to be that our attitudes towards disability in this country were, okay, you know, somebody's disabled, so they've got two options. One, they can either fix themselves, and I don't care how they do it, let them, let them figure out a way, to fix themselves to make themselves quote-unquote normal. And if they can't, then you know what? We excuse them from having to do anything in society. You're excused from employment. You're excused from having a life, which, of course, is a, a simply a nicer way of putting that. You know, go off in the corner, leave us alone, and, and you know, go live in a house and, and don't bother us. So... You know, that, thank goodness that has changed. I mean, you realize now that disability is not something that people should be serving. Either you have to pass as not disabled or go sit in the corner. And we're more about integrating people into that. And so I think that that has to really be a part and parcel of our attitudes towards the built environment and towards design. Let me ask you some technical questions. Elevators. In old buildings and, and in new buildings as well. One of, one of the things that I get a lot is we can't build the second story because the second story makes the cost just enormous because now we have to put in an elevator. I think probably if we went back to 1990, maybe that was true. It seems to me like we've become a lot better at building more affordable elevators and fitting them in in more complex places. Talk about the elevator issue and, and is that an issue or not? I mean, I, I do understand when you have, you know, a developer or someone that's going to be rehabbing an, an older building and, 
the only real way to make access to the second floor or higher floors is to install an elevator that doesn't otherwise exist. It's not an easy thing. I agree. It, 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 but it certainly it can be done. I think that we shouldn't get a little too, you know, focused on that. The, the one, the one thing that that really, really makes me crazy is when I see new builds today that um, because of the way it's being designed. The, the decision is made, well, you know what, let's, let's build it this way, but there's going to be this one level in the structure that we're going to have to put a lift in. We're just going to get make access by lift. That's ridiculous. I mean, if you, you know, build it accessible from the start, and by far and away, I would rather use a ramp anytime than a lift. I really, really dislike them. I, I, in fact, I've, I've not met a wheelchair user yet that likes lifts. And I've seen them used to make older buildings, you know, okay, we'll put this in. And especially the ones that are used outside that are out in the outside weather, they install it and maybe it works the first day or the first week. And then pretty soon it gets rusted. It's used as a trash barrel. And especially if they want that are required to a key, you know, how do you do that? If you're a wheelchair, you go to a building and I'm thinking of some of the Art Deco hotels in Miami Beach. I mean, some of them are wonderfully successful. Others are not. And the way they've provided alleged access is there's a lift just to get up to the, the porch to get in the door. And if it requires a key and you don't have it, you don't know who has it. It's somebody maybe inside the door. How do you get in? I just don't even understand that. So they're really awful. I mean, they, again, they even, even want to, if they, they know where the key is, if they're good about that, training their, their their security people, which is unusual, but if they are good about that, it, they simply are not good functioning things. So that's one of the things, too, that I tell architecture students. I say, if you take away but one thing from my talk today, please, when you get out and practice, do not use with when you can use a ramp. One of the central themes at Strong Towns is the struggle between when it comes to innovation between top-down, orderly, but dumb kind of systems and bottom-up, chaotic, but smart. And I've got a, a number of examples here that I'd like to run by you because ADA has had some orderly, but dumb consequences. I'll give you one of them right off the bat. I see all the time, and I did a video last year called A Pimped Out Roundabout. I've documented this in a few places where you have, like in my hometown here, we have about a mile and a half north of the city, we have a traffic signal intersection. And all four corners have the ADA accessible ramps with you know a bunch of sidewalk along the edge. It's the standard plate for the DOT. This is how we build them. It's been approved by all the ADA people. So they go out and they build this over and over and over. The problem is, is it's a mile and a half north of town. And the four corners of this intersection, three of them are wetlands. There's no not only no development, but there won't be any development. And the fourth corner is an auto dealership that you get, you have to cross like a 20 foot ditch to get to. And again, no one's ever going to, there's no way to get to these things is what I'm saying. I see that going on where we've probably spent a hundred thousand dollars, maybe 150,000 on ADA accessibility stuff out in the middle of nowhere. I come into the city and not only is it not safe for someone with a disability to cross the street, but I can't cross the street. You know, mm -hmm. I get why, because what you're really trying to do here is change the way people understand this issue and approach it. 
how do we create enough flexibility and nuance so that those kind of really dumb spending decisions don't happen and we can mobilize that money in places where it's actually needed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to the, the example that you gave, I guess my one question would be, is there a transit stop out there? Is there a fixer at transit stop? Yeah, no, nothing and, like and that's, that. And is that part of the reason why that was installed out there by the, you were talking about by the wetlands and the car dealer? That would be my one question. I, I know what you're saying. There certainly are issues like that. But I think that the way that we do things better, the way that we utilize resources better is for local and state governments to have better ADA compliance staff, better and, and bring ADA compliance into the to the circle on everything and include them. Don't think about designing either whether it be intersections, whether it be buildings. Okay, let's let's design it. Okay, yeah, now we've got the design and we're you know, looking to build at this point. Oh, okay, that's right. You know what? Let's add the little ADA bathroom over here in the corner and the little access door over here and the parking area, you know, right here. Okay, we've done our job. And we know that that's, that's not a good way to, to be doing things. And, you know, LEED, for example, LEED certification, if you're going to be getting LEED certification for a building, or now we're talking about for designing neighborhoods even with LEED, with LEED and the you know, you need to be doing issues or focusing on issues of sustainability from even before pre-design and be doing it the entire process, not doing it in a linear fashion because you're simply not going to come out with, the, with something that's going to be meaningful and, and worth doing. And I think ADA in a lot of ways is that way. The other thing I'd be asking is if you've got, you know, in, in different intersections, being, you know, when you make it accessible, but they really don't make sense because there's really nobody going out there. They're simply not inhabited. And there's no transit stop there that someone needs to access. Then my question would be, does that entity that put that in have more money than they'll ever need? Because the only way they should be doing that is if they've covered the basis on all the other priority areas for people to get to government services, to people to get to, you know, light rail, for people to get to different buildings, office buildings and the hospitals, all that stuff. Maybe I could ask it like this, because I, I, you've just illuminated something for me and I, I want to make sure that I, I grasp this. One of the things I suspect is that they just have a checklist. Like they go down and say, mm-hmm. all right, here's our checklist. We've got to do the, and there's no context to the design. It's just designing mm-hmm. to a checklist. Would they have the flexibility in their design, you know, within the current ADA guidelines to say, you know, we can clearly see that there's not going to be any development here in the next generation. There's no people period with a wheelchair access or not. There's not going to be any people here, period. We're going to not spend that money here. And we're going to spend it someplace else where we know we have a critical need. Does the ADA allow that type of flexibility for, say, a state DOT? It doesn't allow it. It absolutely requires it. I mean, you absolutely need to be prioritizing locations and prioritizing the, you know, of places, how many folks are going to be using it. And, you know, it does it provide not only access to, to the streets, to the sidewalks, to the transit stops, to the buildings, to, to this and to that. I mean... All of that's essential. And, and I think that a big part of it, too, is that not only do you need to have good ADA compliance people at all levels of 
of the sort of design and, and, and construction, but you need to also be getting input from the disability community. I mean, you know, state, states certainly should do it, but when I, you know, look at local government, and, and fortunately we do that here locally, but there are some local governments that don't even have even a small advisory body on disability issues for their city or their town or their village or what have you. I really don't understand how you can prioritize and how you can get the public input that the ADA requires if you sit down and read the act. So if DOTs and, and other entities are allowed to think, I want to throw a scenario at you and have you react mm-hmm. to it. I was in Washington State last year, and mm-hmm. one of the cities I was visiting had on their council agenda a debate. Uh, someone needed a wheelchair access, lived about a mile and a half out of town. They had just moved to the city a month or two earlier and moved into this house and had petitioned the city to build a sidewalk out to their home on the grounds of they needed access. And under ADA, the city was required to do this. The cost was about 300000 Now, I had spent my day in the city walking around the downtown and some of the historical mm-hmm. neighborhoods where a lot of people lived. The ADA accessibility was, was not great. I mean, there was a ton of mm-hmm. investment that was needed in a neighborhood like this. At this meeting, their attorney was actually saying, the city's attorney was saying, you know, we, we may have to do this. I've got two questions on this. First of all, mm-hmm. what would actually be required under the ADA? And second, what do you think is morally required of society in a situation like this? Wow. Oh, golly. I don't think I could address moral requirements on something that, you know, in that's very, very specific decision making. I think more morality comes into play in a more general sense that people with disabilities should be as equally accepted and integrated into society as everybody else. That is our moral requirement. Now, you know, it's going to take time and it's going to take resources to, to get there. But, you know, basically, we should not be saying things like, we're not going to provide this for somebody with disability because it costs too much. Substitute for disability in another particular classification of people in the world. And if it feels uncomfortable to you to say that, then you want, you need to know that that is also discrimination of people with disabilities. Now, getting back to your more specific question about the city in Washington, the question would be, you know, as somebody that's been an AD professional for government, I would want to know the details about the, the, the resident and where he or she was, they wanted access from where to where and for what purpose. Do they need to get to a bus stop that's down the street from their home so they could use fixed-out transit? You know, what, what is it that they needed? Um, so I think that that needs to be, I think it's hard for me to answer. You know, if, somebody, if, if your answer is, well, they just wanted a sidewalk that ends nowhere but simply passes in front of their house, that, then I would say that's ridiculous. But if they wanted it because they needed to be connected to a bus route to get to work, it's kind of a different issue. I think the debate in the community was really along the lines of, okay, this individual wanted to be connected to the city, wanted to be able to Mm -hmm. come and get groceries, go to the pharmacy, Mm -hmm. do, you know, things that you would do that anybody would need to do. Wanted to be able to do that using their wheelchair or whatever, whatever device they would have that would allow them to do that. But it wouldn't include an automobile because they, they weren't able to drive. And, the debate that the city was actually having was, okay, you just moved here. 
we do have houses that would be in, in different places that would be more accessible. And my gosh, if we're going to spend this kind of money from a utilitarian kind of standpoint, we could do a whole lot more good for a whole lot more people who have similar disabilities if we spend it in different places. These are like deep moral questions that city mm-hmm. councils mm-hmm. have to struggle with. I mm-hmm. just wonder how much flexibility under the law they have and how much flexibility just as compassionate people they have. I mean, what mm-hmm. is the duty of society in a situation like that? Well, I think one of the things that bothered me about what you said, uh, this one of the people, I guess some of the parties involved in this debate was, were like, you just moved here. Why did you move to this more isolated area? I don't think government has any right to talk to a person with a disability like a 10-year-old and scold them. Um, if you wouldn't talk like that to somebody of a racial minority group or, you know, a, a gender minority, whatever, and say, you, you shouldn't live there. Why would you live there? You should live elsewhere. I think that's a problem. No one should ever say that. No one should ever have that position. Now, by the same token, again, if I understand what you're telling me, that this person's neighbors, when they wanted to walk into town, they had to walk in the street. And so... Then the question is, should I have to go on the street with my wheelchair? If you're not providing, if you want to just look purely at the law, the ADA doesn't doesn't provide people with disabilities some kind of magic extra. It simply allows people with disabilities to do what everybody else is doing. So you look at the program being provided. And in this case, there is no program provided in terms of sidewalks. There's no sidewalks for anyone. And since there's no sidewalks for anyone in that area, you're not required to provide sidewalks for people with disabilities. Now, then the question becomes, if they only want a short distance of sidewalk installed to get to a transit stop or what have you, then you would look at, you know, hey, what do we do? But again, you, you, know, you need to be looking at your priorities. Does this city have every bit of accessible sidewalk, every perfect curb ramp, every perfect bus stop throughout the entire rest of the city? I'm guessing they don't, which means that you've got to prioritize resources where there's greater impact. So if you're not planning on providing sidewalks for folks that that don't have disabilities, then, you know, by law, you're not required to provide them for somebody with a disability. But I still, like I said, my question would be, do they need a a portion of sidewalk in a short distance to get to, to transit or something like that? I had to build a friend of mine if he had any questions that he would ask you, because this is a guy who <laughs> builds homes day in and day out. And mm-hmm. he, he sent me two that I've, I found were really, really interesting. The first one deals with the Federal Fair Housing Act, which is is kind of a, I won't say a companion to the ADA, but it, it touches on similar things. It's a civil rights kind of legislation. Mm-hmm. One of the things that it deals with is accessibility, but it limits it to buildings with four units or more. Mm-hmm. What's the magic with four units? And, you know, is this somehow implying that people who live in a, a triplex or a duplex mm-hmm. have less civil rights than someone who chooses to live in a, a four unit place? Certainly problematic. I agree with you. And and I this kind of goes back to why I think visitability is something that should be considered in every jurisdiction. Depends on how stringent you want to make it or how you want to do that. But I think it's something that should certainly be considered and probably implemented in a lot of places for that reason. Now, there are some jurisdictions or municipalities that are able that think about how they can provide 
a better life for the folks in the community that have disabilities. And some places have programs where they'll get state money, certain types of state monies and grant, grant monies and so forth, and create a program where people that are single-family homeowners that own their home, that fit into lower middle income, and that need a ramp installed or need a bathroom through a wide end or a rolling shower instead of a pump shower, can get either low-interest or forgivable loans to cover the cost. And they are they give them a list of GCs, and, and they also give them somebody that's like an ergonomic expert that helps them evaluate what's going to accommodate the disability best. So I think that you know, this kind of goes back to communities getting input from people with disabilities about what they want your government to be doing. And so if you don't have a visibility statute in your jurisdiction, then why not find another sort of program out there that can help folks? And, and that, you know, if you have that type of program that I just mentioned, I think is a, is a good one. Here's another bit of feedback that I got from this builder friend of mine. He, he said, there's a lot of times when we would like to try different things. And a lot of times where we'll look at a situation and say, we, th- we think we can do it better than maybe what the checklist would suggest, or the, the, the checklist being the list of things we know are acceptable because they've been litigated or decide, you know, somewhere else. Mm. But there's a certain fear in doing some of those things because unless it's been tested by a lawsuit, maybe this isn't going to be acceptable. Maybe they'll think it's right in in this instance, but in other instances, it it doesn't work. How do we Mm -hmm. deal with the ambiguity of applying ADA standards in in really complex kind of situations? How do we provide for innovation Mm -hmm. at the ground level when Mm -hmm. the easiest way to do this is just to have a checklist? Yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying, and, and there's definitely truth to it. I, I think that, you know, part of it, it it's kind of a, a, something we need to do sort of society-wide. We need to be, you know, kids that are, and I say kids because they're a lot younger than me, not because they're too, too young, but, you know, young, younger people that go to college that want to become architects, want to become engineers, we need to be talking to them about, you know, disability and building a built environment that better accommodates everybody because disability, again, is not some little sad exception over here in the corner. It is something that touches on many, many people's lives and people deserve to live in an integrated way in society. So you need to be talking, having this conversation early on before people kind of get these ideas set in their head, just accepting a built environment the way it used to be designed decades ago and not really wanting to, to change that, thinking that somehow that's going to be a burden and then, in essence, it's really a really good thing for for everybody. I understand, too, when you've got cities that they do plans review and then they, they go out and do inspections for people to get PCO'd and CO'd and so forth. And it's, it's like what you said. I mean, an inspector's going to come out from the city and they're going to have a checklist. And, you know, that, that man or woman is busy. they got a lot of stuff going on. they got a lot to do. And I think what works better is for cities or whoever has a building department, the city, county, what have you, to have building inspectors that really specialize in the access part of whatever their state building code is, which, of course, is going to mirror the ADA's uh, design standards. So instead of just having, you know, inspectors that are sort of, you know, jack-of-all-trades all the time, having somebody who understands that. So they work with people in the plans review stage and they, you know, they don't feel something that, that really has been done improperly. Um, but what you're, I think one of the things you're talking about is also welcoming 
other ways of design um, that can work just as well or better. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, just has to be sort of like a, a legislative change, convincing people of the value of it and why why things should be different. I mean, certainly, you know, states can be more stringent than the federal standards uh, in terms of building codes. So that's, that's always an option. I sense that the best strategy, if we're going to look holistically at the situation, the best strategy that empowers people with physical handicaps is creating places that are more walkable. How does the new urbanist movement, other movements that are promoting walkability, how do they intersect with this conversation about ADA and making places better for people who have physical disabilities? Mm-hmm. I think that, that people with disabilities should absolutely be, be included in the groups of folks in our society that, that can enjoy walkable communities. Whether we're talking about elderly, we're talking about you know uh, young parents with strollers, we're talking about bikers or rollerbladers or whatever, included in that should certainly be folks who use uh, mobility, things like, like wheelchairs and scooters, or maybe our slow walkers walk with a, with a walker or a cane. They should, everybody should be included in that. And I love, I love walkable communities, absolutely. I mean, less dependence on having to drive or less dependence on having to prepare transit is a great thing, or even fix that transit is a great thing. It certainly is relieves some of the cost on paratransit if people can walk to where they need to go rather than having to necessarily get a ride. It's just overall a great thing. But unfortunately, I do, not with everyone, but I do at times sense some sort of confrontation or, or um, hostility, a little bit of hostility towards accommodating folks with disabilities. That sometimes people see, well, yes, we want to make walkable communities, but we don't want those people with disabilities to constrict us in terms of our ability to design, especially in particular housing. And what I would say to that is, Okay, so then when you when you design something like housing, you are free to be artistic in the sense that if you want to vent your sanitary sewer out into a a, a, a gutter out in front of the house, you're allowed to do that. Are you allowed to wire the house any which way you feel like? Maybe you know use a power strip that's outside. Uh, you got a, a wires coming in through that. And I think, you know, I'm being sarcastic and a little snarky, of course, but, but what I'm saying is there are certain things that are always restricted in terms of design. There are things that are always regulated in terms of design. And simply also including people with disabilities and allowing them to be able to use and get into buildings, get into homes, I don't think is going to somehow just completely stranglehold all artistic uh, freedom. I'd like to end on a personal note. And one of the things you wrote kind of touched me and I want to read it and give you a chance to expound on just how much things have changed in your lifetime. You wrote, Mm -hmm. the days of telethons and tote boards and sad-eyed tots in wheelchairs are fading. Now money for charity is raised via 5K runs and craft beer tastings and endowments. It's becoming less socially acceptable to hold kids up as objects of pity. How Mm -hmm. empowering has the last three decades been for people with physical handicaps and, and, and how much more do we have to do? It's certainly things have gotten better. As, as we really kind of touched on earlier, um, not only in terms of having a, a broad sweeping federal civil rights law that provides protections for people with disabilities in, in various aspects of life. I mean, that's very, very important. And it's also, I think we're having much more, con- many more conversations uh, about this and these issues are being brought up 
And I think that, you know, but we're still struggling. You know, I, I, golly, I wish I had a dollar for everybody in my life that's come up to me and, you know, pat me on the head or on the shoulder and said, you know, you're such an inspiration, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, if I happen to mention that I have a career and a, I dive in, you know, I just this utter look of shock on their face. Oh my gosh, how could she actually do that sort of thing? And, you know, I still, I still get some of that at times, but it's, it's getting better generally uh, in society. It's good. People are, are understanding that people with disabilities are not, again, this little sad, you know, group over to the side. We still need to get though to the point where people don't see not having disability as superior to having a disability. You know, this inherent superiority of one human being over another and this sort of attitude that, oh gosh, if somebody is disabled, of course they'd rather be normal, quote unquote, you know, who wouldn't? And realizing that disability is not a defect or something that makes somebody inferior, but something that's just a part of life. And people with disabilities have every right to enjoy all the things in society that anybody else uh, does. Heidi Johnson, right? I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us and, and answer my questions. You've clarified a lot for me and I think given uh, people a lot to think about. Thanks so much for what you do. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate it. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. The Labour Party has been defending the colour it's chosen for a minibus which is being used in a campaign to try to attract female voters. The Deputy Labour leader Harriet Harman has defended the decision to use the colour on the vehicle, already nicknamed the Barbie bus. Wow. It is a little insulting that you're trying to appeal to adult women voters the same way that Mattel attempts to appeal to eight-year-olds. And at least Barbie's pink bus had the good sense to unfold into a sweet hot tub and party den combo. (laughs) That thing was sick.